You may be seated. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read the whole chapter in a few moments. In our home live five hunters. Three of them are newer ones and they're getting acquainted all the time with what it means to be a hunter. That they are hunters is a matter of fact. And this name, however, has certain entailments for how they can and should live. And so I remind them, you are a hunter. And I often add another sentence. And so we get along. We love one another. We're friends. Or we don't lie to one another. We speak the truth to one another. We're hunters. These are reminders that are meant to make visible what is true of them at one of the deepest levels of their identity, that they belong to the Hunter family. Well, over the last two weeks, we've worked through Ephesians chapters one, two, and three to hear from God's word concerning what the church is. And now, in this sermon and the next, we'll work through chapters four, five, and six to learn about what the church on that basis can and must be. Hear now this urgent word from God, Ephesians chapter four. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But this grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, 
and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Well, the Ephesian church has a powerful and eccentric story. For the Ephesian church, their new identity as Christians meant some pretty big changes to their way of life. And it will be helpful for us to take a look at this. An example of this is recorded for us in the book of Acts chapter 19 for the history of the Ephesian church. As the story goes, Paul was traveling through the city of Ephesus when he met 12 disciples. He asked if they had received the Holy Spirit. They said, we didn't know there's such a thing as a Holy Spirit. Neither had they been baptized. So Paul took care of both. And we had established in Ephesus a church. Paul was in the region for several years preaching so that it could be said that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. At the center of life in this region was the worship of the goddess Artemis. And along with that worship came all kinds of practices, magical practices, sayings, incantations, as we've said, to manipulate the unseen forces. These, of course, were demonic practices, but this was the air that they breathed, and so normal it was that even a traveling Jewish exorcist guy started using Jesus' name as a kind of charm or saying to extract an evil spirit from a man. But that didn't work out too well. As it happened, the demon spoke to this Jewish exorcist and said, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? And then the man, possessed by the demon, jumped on this uh, Jewish exorcist, mauled him, stripped him of his clothes, stripped and beat all the men of their clothes in, uh, in the room, and then sent them all out naked and wounded, the text says. It's all there in, in Acts 19. Use your imagination. This is before YouTube, but it went viral. Everyone heard about this. The, the man who tried to use Jesus to cast a man out who was then mauled by the man so that he had to run away without his clothes. It went viral and many feared, many did extol Jesus, and many Christians came clean. You see, Christians too held on to practices that purported to steer their destiny and manipulate the unseen forces, a contradiction with their allegiance to Christ, but a great temptation and pressure in the world in which they lived. And this conviction of sin led to action, so that we read in Acts 19, verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase 
and prevail mightily. Now that is a lot of books. The sum amounted to 50,000 days wages. They counted it up. It was so much. Those books represented a lack of confidence in Jesus. They were compatible with trusting Jesus Christ mostly, but they were not compatible with trusting Jesus Christ only. This book burning, however, represented God's power in them in their growing maturity in Christ. A bonfire of books like this is a dramatic, even if eccentric, an exceptional demonstration of God's gospel power in a people and in a church. But so too is the maybe less dramatic on the surface unity of the people of God. If this story we've just heard demonstrates the purity that God's power can bring about, the unity that he brings about in his people is no less a dramatic demonstration of his power. And so this sermon is titled, One Life Together, and it's based on Ephesians 4, and that is the accent of Ephesians 4. And so it's my prayer that all of the capital we've stored up from lingering on the great mystery of God's salvation plan revealed in Christ, in the last three chapters would be cashed in this morning for significant life change in this room and in our church, There's gold to back every dollar and there's no limit to our account because there's no limit to the riches of Christ that we've begun to explore. And there's no limit to God's power for as God's word says in the previous chapter, his power is immeasurable. And God by his power will do in his church more than all we ask or think. So we can at least ask that he will work. The sermon will have three parts answering three questions. What is the church about? What is the church like? And how does the church get like that? What is the church about? What is the church like? And how does the church get like that? Verses one through six, our life is about the gospel. Our life is about the gospel. Verse one, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. There's a command here to walk, which means to live in a certain way. But the main thing about this way of life is that it is a way of life worthy of a calling. We all live worthy of something that has called us. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a guy or a gal that is called at some point. Maybe it's a cause that is called. Maybe it's a TV or the fridge or the internet screen or a needle. Anything that we give our lives to is what calls us, is what we're living worthy of. Whatever we're spending life on is what we're worthy of. And these things become a way of life for us. Well, the Christian has been called not to a job or to a cause or to a thing, but to God. We have been called to God. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ this morning and have entrusted yourself and your eternity and salvation to him, then all of this is true of you. And if it's not, I pray that you would come to faith so that it could be and would be. You've been predestined in love to adoption as God's sons. 
And daughters, you have been redeemed to God for his possession. You've been forgiven of your sins so that you can stand before him without any guilt or shame. And you've been given an inheritance by God for the enjoyment of him for all eternity. You've been called from death to God to life with him. You've been called from God's wrath to become his workmanship. And you've been called from a life of walking according to the course of the world to a life of walking in the good works that God has prepared lovingly in advance for you to walk in. If you can think of something better than this, anything that would eclipse any of this, you're just not seeing straight. And that's why we meet here every Sunday because it's so easy not to see this for what it is. It's so easy to forget this. We must be here to hear it again and again. And however was it possible for sinners like us, of course, through Christ, in Christ, by means of Christ and his blood, with Christ who bled for our sins were forgiven. With Christ who is raised from the dead, we are raised from the dead. And with Christ who is seated at the Father's right hand, we are seated in the heavenly spiritually with him. And so as Christians, we have been called to something unfathomably worthy, God. And as Christians, we have been called at a cost of unfathomable worth and cost, Christ and his blood. And that's why the first three chapters of Paul's letter are the farthest thing possible from a dispassionate, lecture-like unpacking of the doctrine of salvation. Really, there's no such thing as that in the Bible. The first three chapters are thick with doctrine, but they are laced with praise to God and prayer, and they flow out of the heart of a man thrilled with the truth. Doctrine is on fire in the Bible and out of the pen of the Apostle Paul. The first three chapters are energetic, passionate, and a personal unfolding of our identity in Christ. And the second three chapters are an energetic, passionate, and personal unfolding of all that that means for us in daily life. So as Christians, we have been called to a life worthy of a worthy calling, which is a bigger change than going from single to married or from going, uh, from receiving children, the blessing of children, or from going from a civilian to an enlisted man or woman. It's really more like going from death to life, which is a pretty big transition and entails life change for those who go from death to life. It is the image God gives us. So what kind of change must this entail? What will, God, what will Paul describe for us as our way of life as those who've been raised from the dead? Here is radical Christianity. Verse 1, we walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Sort of sounds like surviving This is radical. If these words seem like the stuff of cute inspirational cat posters, they kind of are. But they're also actually the stuff of hardcore inspirational Christian living. It is harder than it sounds. Patience and gentleness sounds great until you're provoked. It's like if someone told you to tightrope across the Grand Canyon. Someone has done that recently. A child might say, I can walk in a straight line. 
give it a shot. When you're on the wire, it's different, I'm sure. But because God has performed the impossible in us, in the gospel, Paul urges us to match that with our lives, and we have the power to do so. It's urgent, urgent that we walk in humility, not being overly impressed by a sense of self-importance. It's urgent that we walk with gentleness, a kindness to others, even when circumstances might excuse one from showing gentleness. It's urgent that we walk with patience with one another, bearing up under each other's provocations. And it's urgent that we bear with one another in love, which means put up with one another. That's what it means. God saved you, he made you alive, put up with each other. And I've given you the power to do what feels impossible in putting up with one another at times. It means we can annoy each other. It means we can sin against each other. But we don't even put up with one another begrudgingly. We do so in love, which is to say cheerfully. Because we are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is difficult stuff. A healthy, happy, unified church is not on accident. And it's not because people are without sin. It is because a people gets good at Absorbing the shock of sin in our relationships. Overlooking, praying, being gentle, being patient, putting up with one another. Now notice something here with me. These commands assume some things. They assume other Christians. Obvious enough, they assume imperfect Christians. None of these qualities really count when you're laying on the couch on Saturday with no one in the house and nothing to do. The church is more than a social club, but the church is not less than a social community. It's not something you show up to and leave. It's a people that you are a part of like family. You don't just live in your house. You live with family. And so it is with the church. And that's why this sermon is titled One Life Together. In this point, our life, our life is about the gospel. There's no Christian life apart from the church and there's no following Christ apart from walking with the church because Christ died for more than Christians. He died for a church. He died for a people. Remember the corporate dimension of our salvation. We were hopeless, but now we're God's household. We were foreigners and now we're family. We were without God and now we are together, each of us a brick, a temple for the presence of God in which to dwell. And this only makes sense, for God is not divided, and neither are his plans divided. And that's why he says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called with one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God is not divided. There's only one spirit, This is a Trinitarian reflection, by the way. One spirit and one hope that he secures and one body that he brings us into. Not two or ten or fifty. There's only one Lord Jesus Christ and one faith that we confess by him and one baptism in his name, not two or ten or fifty. And there is only one Father and one plan for his sovereign rule to be expressed over all things, not two or ten or fifty 
The Father and the Son and the Spirit are not divided and neither are their plans and neither are their purposes and neither are their people. Paul, writing at this time, knew of churches established all over the region, many, many miles apart, with different characteristics and different styles of leadership, perhaps. Different approaches to their corporate gatherings, although some basic elements, no doubt. And yet he spoke of one faith and being taught in Jesus. Some would say that at this time there were many competing visions of Christianity. Oh, there were people taking Jesus' name and teaching false things, no doubt. But there was clearly one faith in the mind of Paul that he describes. And so we're a part of that one faith. One church, not two, not ten, not fifty. Through the gospel, God is more than blessing us, but blessing us in such a way that displays his mighty power. And God's power is displayed in a gospel that not only unites us to him, but as we learned last week, unites us to one another. And not by force, but by the miracle of conversion. God's power is is displayed in a gospel that not only unites us to him, but each other. Remember Jesus' words about us in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And remember his words in his prayer for us. His prayer on the eve of his arrest, the day before his crucifixion. You want to find out what somebody wants deep down? Listen to their prayers the night before they know they're going to die. Here's one of Jesus' prayers in John 17. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, his disciples, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus and God and the Spirit are one in perfect communion. And in salvation, they envelope us into their love so that we are united to Christ and as we're enfolded into his love, we're united to each other. You see this? It's rooted in the doctrine of God and his eternal fellowship among the three persons of the Trinity. And so that when the church is united with all of our diversity, across the world and in locations like this, it's actually a profound miracle in a sinful world that this could happen such that Jesus can say, this is proof that God sent me and this is how they'll know and this is how the world will know that I have loved and God has loved his people because they bear with one another in love, in humility, in patience, profound, not common things. This is absolutely true, and it is urgent that we act like it's true, which requires humility and patience and forbearance. The gospel-centered life is a life with a church at the center, and the gospel-centered church as a church that gets along beautifully. And it's a lot of work. Our life is about the gospel. But if Ephesians in these verses, and especially the first three chapters, have felt a little abstract, and you're longing for something concrete, the concrete truck has definitely arrived. 
And there is plenty, plenty of concrete left to spill. And it will get thicker and it will get faster as the book unfolds and this chapter unfolds. Our life is about the gospel. That's what it is about. What is our life together as the church like? Verses 7 through 16, our life is like a body. Our life is like a body. The church is a unity, but the church is a unity of many individual parts, sort of like a body. It's why the image of a body has to be that image that gets the most ink in the New Testament. Numerous letters, you'll come across paragraphs, plural, unpacking this image and its meaning for the church. And it's also pretty much the most absolutely common thing ever to human beings. It's a body. We're conceived in one and we're born with one and we walk around with one and we use one every day. Uh, We experience life in a body. And so God is making this very, very simple for us. And he's given us a very useful illustration and a good one. Makes things plain. Like a body, the church has unity. There is one body, as Paul said. But their church is like a body in many other ways. Like a body, the church has many parts. It has many parts. Verse 7. But grace was given, here's the new word, to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one. The church is saved by grace and the church is sustained by grace as Jesus Christ equips individual members, it's various members with various kinds and amounts of grace to perform various kinds of service toward the body. There's diversity on purpose, spiritual diversity. We have some of what are called spiritual gifts in the New Testament, descriptions of various ways God has equipped individual believers for service and ministry. We won't explore that except merely to say here that God has actually established us as different at our salvation. We're diverse on purpose. Not only does Jesus rescue us from Satan's grip, but he makes us beautiful together. Not only does he free us from the grave, but he will make us strong, whereas our diversity used to be a problem in the world. Here it's an asset. And in a way that's genuinely hard to reach, this is actually what Paul is saying in verse eight through 10 that it's our unity through this diversity that is a declaration to the unseen forces and to Satan that God through Jesus and his cross wins. Therefore, it says, verse eight, he ascended on high. When he did, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Sort of a cryptic saying. The point is straightforward. Jesus is exalted over everything, everywhere, and as the exalted Christ, he distributes his gifts as king to his people for their service to one another. He is quoting from Psalm 68 here. Psalm 68, if you read the whole thing, clearly a psalm exalting God for his victory and the power and strength he gives to his people. We will circle around to it at the end of the sermon. The body is diverse, but miraculously, instead of compromising our unity, this diversity enhances our unity, just like a body. So like a body, the church has many parts. 
And like a body, the church has a clear structure. Of course, the body has a head, which is Christ, as we'll see. But there are other crucial parts. This isn't exactly how the text uses it, but I'm going to call them vital organs. Vital organs. Leaders. Verse 11, and he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. There are grace gifts that Jesus gives to his church that are in the form of people who perform certain functions. Who are are we talking about here? Ryan has been helpful in helping me parse this. He preached on this passage within the last year or two. Apostles, of course, are the 12 plus Paul appointed by Jesus personally to establish the church. The prophets are other prominent leaders, especially those non-apostles given to writing scripture, Mark and Luke. These two groups are special in the first century. It seems to be clear in the way that they're talked about. In this letter, the church, Paul says in chapter two, is built on the foundation of who? The apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And speaking of the mystery of the gospel, in chapter three, Paul writes that the mystery, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. They seem to go together. Part of their work is to establish the foundation of the church and to do so by receiving the revelation of God. I think what we're talking about here is the testimony that we have to Jesus Christ and his work in the church, in the letters of the New Testament, and in the Gospels given to us by the apostles and the prophets. Then we have evangelists. In the first century, there were those traveling ministers who established churches in preaching the gospel. You see commands to be hospitable to those who were traveling through. Missionaries. Shepherds, which are local pastors. Overseers, elders are other words used for them. Caring for the flock and teaching and preaching. And then you have those who are teaching in the church but may not have the office of pastor. They have a teaching ability and they're instructing in the scriptures. All of these are needed. Now are these the special Christians that are set aside, the professional ministers to do ministry to the rest of the church and for the rest of the church? They certainly have a ministry, but their ministry is precisely in their equipping of the saints for ministry. The whole body joined together by every joint with which it is equipped works properly and builds itself up. And the ministers, these leaders, equip the saints for work of ministry. And the work of ministry is not merely a matter of being on the rolls or involved in the logistics of programming. Although anything that you're involved in around here is meaningful in supporting the work of the word. But the ministry that it's talking about here is primarily a ministry of the word. Each of you, a minister of the word. On a list or a time slot or involved in a program anywhere or not as a Christian, you're called by God as a minister of the word to those in your life and those around you. And it's the leader's job to equip you with the word to speak the truth in love. Like a body, the church has a clear structure, many parts. And like a body, the church grows. Its equipping is for a certain purpose. Verse 12, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature and the fullness of Christ. 
A body is made up of many, many things that coordinate beautifully and grow in proportion to one another. How unhealthy and even dangerous would a baby be with a giant hand? Imagine if a hand could sort of run out ahead of the rest of the body or demand that because it would spend the rest of its life feeding the thing that uh, it was going to go ahead and take advantage of 60% of all of the nutrition and protein that went into the baby's body so that it grew at a faster rate than the rest of the baby. I would not want to meet a baby with a giant hand. Wouldn't be good for anybody. And it doesn't mean that we're wrong to pursue growth on our own, but you get the idea? Our growth is intended as a service to the rest of the church and for its growth. So there's really no such thing as a Christian growing sort of out there on his or her own, regardless of what's going on at the church, indifferent to the church, uninterested in the church. Not only can that kind of deep, meaningful, true Christian growth not happen, that it's not serving its proper function and serving the body. Like a body, the church has many parts, a clear structure, it grows, and like a body, the church is vulnerable. Leaders equip the saints, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul was a man of the water. And when he thought of a church not rooted in the Bible and what happens to those people and that church, the image that came to his mind was a boat caught in a storm, not anchored to the ground, blown about without any control by every wind and wave. It's the job of the leaders to teach doctrine Truth, the word of God, so that the church is not blown about by every wind of doctrine. So you can see how central to the life of the church the word of God is. We never want to pit teaching and theology and doctrine against ministry and evangelism and mission. The one informs and shapes and fuels the other. They go together. And they'd heard this from Paul years before, Acts 20, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. After my departure, he says to the elders at Ephesus, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We need good teaching and regular teaching. Like a body, the church has many parts, a clear structure, it grows, it's vulnerable, and it needs sustenance. Verse 27, it started with Paul, verse 27 in Acts 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, Paul says. He did his job in passing off the word of God, and the elders then instructed the saints at Ephesus. And now, verse 15 of chapter 4 in Ephesians, speaking the truth in love, we, all of the saints, the whole church, is to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. All of us speaking the truth in love. Teaching the Bible is not just the job of the church leaders, but it is the job of every Christian who can communicate. Every joint works so that the whole body grows. So you want to get involved at DSC? Meet people. Show up. Keep showing up. Show up again. Meet people. Remember their name. Follow up with them for another conversation, maybe a meal. 
take notes after church or during church about who you've met and what you've learned about them and follow up. Expand your pool of friendships and relationships wider and then deeper over time and you will have yourself a substantive ministry. Many of you have something like this at our church. Showing up, meeting, talking, listening, praying, speaking the truth and love. And community groups are a great way to get after this. Church needs sustenance. And like a body, the church has a head. It's got a head. You notice how Christ is the main thing in the church's growth? It's the main thing about the church. We grow up into the measure and the stature and the fullness of Christ. We are the body of Christ. In verse 15, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. The head is the main part, the top part, the boss part, the part without which the rest of the body can't move or make any sense and lays lifeless. And so he is our head. What is the church about? Our life is about the gospel. And what are we like? We're like a body. And how do we get like that? How do we grow and how do we mature? Three, our life is being renewed. We're in the process of being renewed. Verses 17 through 32. Something might have occurred to you in the course of this sermon or even before listening to this sermon and listening to the previous two. God's power raised Jesus from the dead. It's powerfully at work in us. But then Paul prays that we would know God's power and that his power would be at work within us. And now he gives us a bunch of commands and these commands assume certain things. Commands for humility assume pride. To put up with one another assume people are annoying and wrong-headed and sinful. And to speak the truth in love to one another assumes that we might not always be so loving in our truth-telling or so truthful in our love. So what's up with God's power? If he can raise the dead, why can't he just fix us? Maybe you wonder that sometimes if you look at the church. Then you're disappointed in the church or Christians, disappointed in yourself. How come God has not just made it all right if he could? Well, of course he could, but apparently he has his reasons for doing it like this. Apparently, God is glorified in a process of renewal. In his wisdom, he's decided to bring about salvation in two steps, where he sends his son Jesus to purchase our salvation and then to send his spirit after his ascension. And we're made alive, but then we're not perfect. We're not complete until Jesus comes back. And in the in-between, we wrestle with sin and we fight to believe God and we burn our magic books And we put up with one another. We survive together and try to keep this thing together. And it's difficult. Ron has been giving me material in our pre-service meetings lately. And he did today. He threatened Drew Hodge to kill Drew Hodge if Drew told him who won the game. There's a game going on right now. And uh, so he's DVRing it. He's going to watch the game. All the while, the end is determined. Well, there's something to say for watching it unfold. Isn't there? There's glory to be witnessed. There's drama to be beheld. And so it is in our life as the church, unfolding across time before, between Jesus' first and second coming is the church putting to work the power of God 
to be transformed into the thing that they will be perfectly when we meet God. Christ has come and sent his spirit and his powers at work within us. The Christian life and the church is something that we're hard at work at. And part of this is really understanding how our lives work from the inside out. Part of the work of growing is understanding how our lives work on the inside. And so Paul gives us a command in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart, having become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There's a progression here. There is a darkness of mind, a futility of thinking, a willful ignorance of God because of the hardness of heart that pushes him away. Romans 1 says, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, truth that is plain in what God has made about God and his power and his goodness. We don't want anything to do with it. Now, not everyone is a cannibal or an axe murderer apart from Christ. His point here is that our orientation apart from God is against God. And you may not see that antagonism on the surface of every person who doesn't know the Lord, or you may not feel so antagonistic toward God in any given moment if you're not in Christ. But when push comes to shove, if it's your sin and what you love and yourself and your pride and your achievements or God in his glory, you will pick yourself. And this is the description of the hardened, darkened mind and heart. That was ours, but it is not us anymore. Here's us, verse 20. But this is not what you learned in Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. We had a former way of thinking and feeling and living that was based on a lie all the way down. Deceitful desires and we loved them. But now in Christ, our life, our thoughts, our feelings, and our life is based on truth. The truth of God and his righteousness and holiness. So what am I supposed to do, we might ask? Paul says it very plainly. Put off, put on, put off, put on. This imagery to put off and put on is tied to an ancient practice that was deeply embedded in the culture of the times and while remote to us would have nonetheless been fully understood by our original readers. It is the putting off and the putting on of clothing. It could not be more straightforward. What is the church like? It's like a body. What is growing like? It's like putting on new clothes. That's what obedience looks like. We should understand this. We know exactly what it means. Imagine you've been living on the streets. You're wearing the same clothes you have for a long, long time. And you haven't showered and you smell, but you can't even tell. Your nose is callous to it. You've alienated from yourself from your family, and that's part of how you've ended up here. Forgotten. Then much to your surprise, you are found and taken in by family years later. 
You're given a place to live, food to eat, a place at the table, and you're given new clothes to wear. By all means, take off those old clothes and put those new clothes on and do it now. It's urgent. Your family. Take them off. Put them on. Paul now spells out very specifically what he means. Verse 25, having put away falsehood, let each one speak truth with his neighbor. We're members of one another, he says. He keeps giving reasons. God doesn't lie to the son, the father doesn't. And the father and the spirit and Jesus, they don't lie to us. And so we don't lie to one another. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. There's a time to be angry, but there is no time to sin in our anger, either because our anger is out of proportion with the offense we've encountered, or because we've held on to our anger too long, or because we've gotten angry at something that we should not have gotten angry at for a reason that is unbiblical, untrue. Cover the sin if you can, confront it if that would be productive for the person who's offended you, or the relationship and for the body. Remember always that God is the one who deals with sin finally and will all deal with all sin either in hell or he's dealt with it at the cross. Sin in our anger is a crack in the door and Satan crouches at the door and his eyes are trained on the edge of the door so that when the crack opens, he runs in. And anger can destroy you and there is more danger there for your soul than any inconvenience or trouble that has made you angry. Careful. Verse 28, the thief no longer steals, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Taking things from people with your own hands or with bad books at work or with slick words to secure someone's business is all a form of theft. If you have a job where you cannot compete within your company or with other businesses without deceiving people in the course of securing business, then don't compete and settle for what the Lord provides through honest work. And good businessmen will tell you it actually works and is rewarded. But if competing in that fashion means not competing and not surviving in the business, then find another job. If you cannot perform your job without lying and deceiving and cheating, then you need as a Christian to have another job. We don't steal. We work honestly believing the Lord provides through our hard work. And we work honestly to provide for ourselves, and we live in such a way so that we can actually provide for other people that are in need, especially those in the body. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. We don't use our words to hurt people, to prop ourselves up, but to build others up and to serve them. Do the words we speak make the world a happier place for everyone or just for us? Why do we say what we say? Christians think about that. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he sums it all up here in verse 30 through 32. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, slander be put away from you 
along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Don't just put up with one another, be tender-hearted with one another. This is a great challenge. And that last line is key. Paul prayed that we would experience the power of God in our hearts to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and it's as we are filled with the love of Christ that we can extend that love to other people because we know how much we've been forgiven of. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. The cross saved us and it shapes us. And so as the church, we are about the gospel. And as the church, we are like a body. And as the church, we are being renewed. Remember that reference Paul made? That cryptic reference? Middle of the passage? A quote from Psalm 68? About Christ ascending and descending and all of that? Psalm 68 is a psalm of God's victory over his enemies rescuing his people from death and the wicked plots of those who hate God, Satan who stands before them, behind them all. It's a psalm that calls on us over and over again to bless God and to praise him for his power at work in his people. Does it sound like Paul might have woken up the morning he started to write Ephesians having read this psalm? Read it. It does to me. Here's how that psalm ends. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. So we are not just Christians here this morning. We are his people. We are his church. A demonstration that God is in the heavens and that he is powerfully at work, victorious over all things. Remember that the next time you're tempted to slander or gossip or stew in anger, what the church is and how the church was bought. Remember that when you're tempted to disengage from church or to disregard the body here. We are not merely pardoned rebels. As one commentator put it, and I love this, we are a society of pardoned rebels belong together. New creations being renewed in every way so that we actually get along and beautifully. Kind of like a body. Proof that the gospel is true. Proof that God really did send Jesus and proof that God really does love us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word from Ephesians chapter four, that you have given to us in love. You have lavished on us grace to your praise and for our good, and we have heard about it in the first half of this book, and now we have heard all that that means for us. And it is ultimately no burden, 
For we are not only loved in our salvation, but we are loved as you give us these commands to sustain our life for our good and your glory. And we pray that in the unity that is reflected in the life of this church on the ground of this age would be a testimony to the world that Jesus Christ has come and has been sent and that you have loved us through him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.